One of the ways we can say, well, how did we get to this point? We can blame a lot of things, and we can blame a lot of situations. Uh, well, as Amos is going to show us here in just a second, well, the first step is that we are no longer sure of why we believe what we believe. And this is so true. So we're going to unpack this for a second before we jump into Amos chapter 2. But it is so true. Is that the first step for you compromising, for me to compromise, is that we're no longer sure of why we believe what we believe. And here's what's happened today. Whether it's been intentional or not, there is a misinformation campaign, right? And so it is that everything would be subjective and contingent upon what I feel about it. And there's a lot of hot topics today that we could pick on and say, well, what is it that you believe? Do you believe uh, that, you know, this is happening? Or do you believe this is happening? Do you believe you should do this or you shouldn't do this? And there's all these polarizing views that are taking place. And so what's happened is everything has become so polarized that believers have said, well, I'm just going to stay in the middle. I'm just going to sit right here in the middle, and I'm not going to be staunch on one side, and I'm not going to be staunch on the other side. I'm just going to stay in the middle. I'm not going to ruffle the waters. No one's really going to know what I think or what I believe. Now, that's a whole other topic of the things that we should stand for, and, and I'm talking about things that matter, okay? And so we've gotten to this point to where we say, well, why do you believe what you believe? And we're no longer answering that question because we don't know the answer to that question. Think about it. Church attendance in the last 50 years has declined. Why has that been the case? Well, think about the people in your family who came before you. For the vast majority of us, we would say that our ancestors were churchgoers, right? We would say that. And for the most part, you may even say that they were the patriarch or the matriarch of your family that initiated that, right? That they were the ones that got you involved in church. And grandma would take you to revival or grandma would take you to church. And guess what's happened in the last 50 years? They have passed away. And so now we're doing the things that they did, and a lot of people did the things that, you know, their ancestors did for a time. And you could even argue historically, this goes all the way back to biblical times, that for a time, even after their passing and their influence, that we still involved ourselves in the things in which they taught us or they passed on to us. But then the question or the confrontation with reality became this. Why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you uh, believe it's important to spend time in prayer? Why do you believe it's uh, important to spend time uh, reading the Word of God? And fewer and fewer people had a real answer to that. And so we get to today where most Christians are marginal in their faith because they don't live by convictions. They don't live by convictions. So we don't do what we should do based on conviction and what it leads us to is not knowing why we do what we do. And so we say, well, you know, why, do you, why are you a Baptist? That's a good question to ask. For me, the answer is I believe that Baptists believe the closest to Scripture of what Scripture teaches, and so that's why I choose to align myself with Baptists. That's my answer. So you have to have a conviction about what you do. Now, for me, that can be a little dangerous, I'll be honest with you, because I'm extremely principally driven. So everything that I do has a principle. And if, it's not, if, it's, if, it, uh, if something happens that breaks that principle, regardless of the repercussions, my initial reaction is that I have to stand up for that principle. That principle matters. Now, I have to rein myself in sometimes to say, well, hang on a second. That, that principle may have been broken, but does that principle really matter? And so I have to be careful, you know, and guard myself against that. But what's happened is our convictions have become so watered down that we're no longer standing up for convictions. Like, for instance, if we say that we believe in the sanctity of life and the conviction of that, then we should stand up for those things, right? If we say that we believe that the Word of God is the inerrant Word of God, then we should stand up for those things. But what's happened is we haven't. We as in, you know, the church at large. And so what's happened then is we found ourselves in the situation that we're in today. It's the same situation that Amos was in. Is that all these things became true, that Israel began to prosper. And Israel began to uh, receive 
in their minds, the favor, quote, of God. And so they took the blessing of God and they used it to their own benefit. And they thought that nothing wrong could happen because look at all the good. We're prospering economically. We're prospering socially. We're not at war. I mean, it's the same things that are happening today. It's been, what, 20 years since we've been in a war? And so as we look at this, what's happened is the convictions become marginal. You see, God's called us to be distinct in the face of an ever-changing culture. What doesn't change in your life and in my life is your faith. What doesn't change is the object of your faith. And so as believers, culture may change every single day, and that's fine. I mean, there's a lot of things that have changed that I'm grateful for. I'm glad that you can hop on a plane and be anywhere you want on the globe in a couple of days. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for air conditioning in cars. I'm grateful for air conditioning in buildings. I mean, there's a lot of that. I'm grateful for technology. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when there weren't cell phones. So, I mean, think of the technology. Somebody got stuck in the elevator here a few days ago, and the comment was made, thank God for a cell phone, right? Or you might be sleeping in the elevator, right? So there's some things that have changed in culture, technology. Uh, you know, I, I was on a conference call today, and they made the comment, technology has never moved any faster than it's moving right now, and it will never move any slower than it's moving right now. Now, think about that. And so as we see all of these changes, some of these changes benefit us. Think about the transmission of information that, you know, for, for the good causes, we could, we could take the gospel now, and we can share the gospel with anyone electronically now, right? I mean, we can disseminate that information anywhere at any time as fast as our fingers can tie. There's some good things that are happening. And so as the culture changes, the message doesn't change. The delivery of the message may change, but the message doesn't change. And so what we have to remind ourselves of and what Amos is reminding Israel of is that you have to remember who God is and you have to remember what the message is and culture can change and everyone around you can do something different and that's okay for them, but it's not okay for you. If that's what they want to do, then they're going to give an answer for it, just like Pastor Tony talked about last week, that humanity will answer for what God has called them to. And so this uh, change should stir us up, and this should stir us up to a life of holiness. It should stir us up to a life of distinctiveness. You see, the worse things get in our world, the more we ought to press into the holiness of God. The more that we see the deterioration of society and laws and whatever else you want to toss in the basket, the more that we see those things take place, the more it should compel us to draw closer to a never-changing God. And so what Amos is trying to remind Israel of is of those simple facts, that God doesn't change. And so he's calling Israel out for fitting in with the culture around them. And so as we begin, we should challenge ourselves to examine the things that we participate in and say, am I fitting in? Do I look like everyone else? Am I different? Am I distinct from, you know, we've talked about that for weeks here in previous months. So am I distinct? Am I fitting in or am I different? So we pick up in Amos chapter 2 and we'll start in verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will, revoke, I will not revoke, rather, the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. So remember, this is Amos talking to Israel, not Judah. And so God is speaking about Judah to Israel. Just like last week, if you'll rewind to last week, Pastor Tony talked about how uh, Amos spoke to Israel about the surrounding nations. And so again, we pick up here, and he's talking about Judah, and he says, look, I've been gracious to Judah. I've, I've given mercy. I've, I've given them time to repent. For three, now for four, I will not revoke their punishment, because now they have to pay for their sins. And so through the prophet Amos, God is calling out the other nations around Israel. And so he's declaring the things to be true for those nations, okay? Now, for the nation of Israel, they have to feel pretty good about themselves at this point, wouldn't you think? 
Because here's Amos, and for two chapters now, he's talking about everyone else. And he's saying, look what God did to the Amorites and the Moabites and on down the list. And then now he says, not even that. He even did it to your brother. Look what he's doing. He is going to make Judah pay. And now for hundreds of years, and, and you should be an expert on this now, for hundreds of years, Israel and Judah fought each other. Remember, we went through all the kings of Israel and Judah. And there was always this constant battle between the two nations, the ten tribes of the north and the two tribes of the south. And so they had this big conflict all the time and sometimes there'd be peace and sometimes there'd be war and it was back and forth and back and forth and so for the nation of Israel to hear this about the nation of Judah they're pretty psyched about that they're saying you're right God you need to get them God I can't believe they would act that way you see it is so easy for us to see sin in the lives of other people it is I mean you're not emotionally attached to it. You're not uh, sinfully attracted to whatever sin it is. And so in your own life, it's easy for you to look at someone else and observe and to see the sin in their own life. As a matter of fact, Jesus was very specific about talking about this. And he says that it's important that we're careful not to find sin in your life before I see sin in my own life. Remember the whole plank and speck type thing that Jesus talked about? And so it's easy, and Jesus knew that our heart's tendency was to see it in you before I see it in myself. You see, we disagree today, and most often, rightly so, with all of the decisions that are being made in and around us, both locally and nationwide. And we see the things and say, I can't believe that decision was made, or I can't believe that was the decision that was made. And it's easy for us to see those things. And so what happens is we see that, and we say, go God. Or we say, that's right, you got to straighten them out, God. Or, or God, you got to fix this. And we even pray for results of those things in which we desire based on their sinfulness. In other words, something is done that's bad, and we pray that it would be rectified, which is good, right? Those are good things. But to agree with the punishment given to all of the, quote, sinners around us as Israel viewed the punishment of Judah... Well, that's where we fall off track. Because here's what happens. When we see the fallenness of the world around us, and just open your eyes, and you can find it on every corner that you look, what happens is it causes us to see it a different way. What do I mean by that? Well, again, it's easy for me to see your sin. But when I'm looking at your sin, whose sin am I not looking at? My sin. And so it causes me to subconsciously justify my own sin because I'm so fixated on what you're doing wrong. And so today, guess what? It's like DirecTV. You got like 250 channels of opportunity to look at all of the sin that's happening around you, right? And you can say, well, that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong, and I'm going to stand up against that, and I'm going to stand up against that, and that's never going to happen, and on and on and on. And all the while, what is happening in our own hearts? We're ignoring our own sinfulness. We're ignoring the own depravity of our own heart. You see, this is what the Bible says. You see, God sees sin differently oftentimes than we see sin. Isaiah 59, 2, it's on your handout. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And so your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Now, this will come back into play in just a few minutes. That will be very important. So, Isaiah's writing here. He says, your sins have separated you from you and your God. When we become so fixated on the sins that are around us, and make no mistake, I'm not justifying any action that's taking place today. What I am saying is this. We've got to take care of ourselves first. Right? We've got to clean our own closets out first. We've got to declare holiness as the preeminent goal in our own lives first before we can go fix everybody else. And that's what's happened today, is nobody is intent on holiness in their own life because we're so captivated by the sinfulness of everything around us. And Jesus, or, or Isaiah says about God, he says, your sin has separated you from God. Your sin has hidden his face from God. God is not here. You see, tonight, I think it's a good reminder, although it's 
very sobering thought is that it is your own personal sin that separates you from a holy God. It is your sin. It is my sin that separates me from a holy God. It is not my sin that separates you. It is not your sin that separates me. It is not the sins of this nation that separate you from God. It is your sin and your sin alone. You see, so oftentimes we forget that. We forget that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We forget that in Romans 3.10, Paul says there's, there's none that are righteous. None of us have it figured out. And it is because of that sin that we have found ourselves separated. The Bible says your sins have hidden His face. You see, we've become so captivated with the sins of others that we've lost the gravity of our own sins. We've been lulled to sleep by the distractions that are around us, and we failed to, to realize the absolute depravity of our own personal sins. Now, there's good news at the end, so hang with me, all right? But is that not true? I mean, when is the last time that we were so distraught over our own sin? I mean, people get worked up over everybody else's sin. And again, rightfully so. But do you feel the same way about your own sin? I mean, let's get the card out of the way. Everybody sins, okay? You sinned before you came in here. You sinned multiple times today. I mean, that's just how this works, okay? We're fallen. We're sinful. That's just how this works. And so as, as believers, as people that have been called to be distinct, as God's chosen people, as we'll see with the nation of Israel, what God has done is He's grafted us in, and He's called us out to be different, and that difference begins with solitude before God and the reality of repentance before God for my own sin before I have the ability to step out into the world. That's how that starts. You got saved in your heart before you declared it with your mouth. That's how that starts. When is the last time you were broken over your own sinfulness? We, we are aware that we are sinners. We are aware that it is repulsive to God that we sin. Now, now don't mistake, God absolutely loves you. God absolutely loves you so much that He refuses to allow you to stay in that state. All of the history of the nation of Israel, what did God do? God sent Redeemer, redemption for redemption for redemption for redemption, right? It was, he sent a prophet, and he sent a prophet, and he sent a prophet, and he sent a prophet. And about every other king or every three or four kings, he would send a godly king, and he would send someone to be what? To be an ambassador for the nation of Israel, to draw the nation of Israel back. It's the same thing in your own life, that there are so many things that happen in our lives that are caused by sin, that we have no idea that God is in uh, movement or control of, that there's things that we do that get us so far off track, and God just gives us a little bitty nudge to get us right back to where He wants us to be, to head right back in the direction of which He intends for us to go. And maybe we don't even recognize that, but what God is doing is He's keeping us He's keeping us within the realm of what He wants us to do and outside of the realm of the wrath of the world around us. That's the way this thing works, is He's in total control. And there is so much sin in our own lives that we, if we're driving the car, that we immediately curve right off the road, right? That's exactly what happens when we get to drive. But God, ever so gently, is moving that steering wheel, keeping us out of the ditch, if you will, to where He has intended for us to go. He refuses to allow you and I to live in the state of sinfulness in which humanity is brought upon itself. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, because of Adam, we're all born with sin nature. But God refuses for that to be the last chapter of your story. And so for us and for the nation of Israel, as Amos is declaring this, he's saying, you have to start with the reality that you're a sinner. This is not just about Judah or the Amorites or the Moabites or you list whoever. This is not about all the, the, the people that were elected or not elected or people who did the right thing or the wrong. This is about you. It's about you. And it's about me. 
And so there has to be this moment that we begin, as we'll see with Israel, that we look at ourselves first, that we stop being distracted by the sinfulness around us, and that we deal with the repulsive depravity of our own sin. You see, God's desire for us is uninterrupted fellowship with Him. That's what God wants. That's what God desires. God wants to walk, one of my favorite verses in Genesis, in the cool of the day with you, especially in August, right? That was a joke. Right? God wants, God wants un- uninterrupted fellowship with us. But what happens is sin often mars that opportunity. That it distances us from God. It, it prohibits us, it inhibits us from hearing what God has to say. You see, we think about sin a lot, and sometimes maybe you talk about it, maybe you don't think about it, I don't know. We talk about sin a lot, and we, we relate that to God. And I've heard, maybe you've heard, I may have even said it before, uh, God cannot be in the presence of sin, right? You've heard that before? And you say, oh, well, you know, that's why there's no sin in heaven, and which, you know, I've heard some people say that before. And so, you know, you, you have this, so what, think about what, let's, let's think through that for a second. God can't be in the presence of sin. Well, this is where that comes from, Habakkuk 1.13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Oftentimes, you know, people reference Moses. You know, God, I want to, I want to, uh, you know, I want to see you, God. And the veil was over his face. Or Elijah. God, can I see you? Well, you know, you can see the, my back, right? He had him in the cleft of the rock. God can't be in the presence of sin. You see, I think sometimes what we do is we, we get this crooked view of God where he can't look on sin or he can't be near sin because sin would somehow taint his holiness. What happens when we, when we say it without explanation? Maybe, maybe you mean it the right way, but oftentimes what we're doing is we're giving this view of God can't be in the presence of sin. It, it gives sin way too much power and gives God way too little power. Now, let's think about this, okay? You know, I've, I've read a lot of things this week on sin and, you know, different opinions and stuff. And you see, think about this way. This was the best way that that I have seen it put here. God is not like a pristine white couch upon which no one can sit for fear of it getting sold. No, sin cannot be in the presence of God because whenever God draws near to sin, the raging inferno of God's love and holiness washes all sin away. God can no longer be tainted God can no more be tainted by sin than the ocean could be dyed red with a single drop of food coloring. Think about that. It's not that sin can't be in the presence of God because God somehow would be affected by that. It's that God is so holy that sin can't stand to be in the presence of God. It's not that God can't be in its presence. It's that sin can't be in God's presence. But I think it's even more important that, you know, as though sin is its own entity. What is sin? Sin is disobedience to God, right? So so God says, what is sin? Sin, Why did God bring the law? So that we would know what sin was, right? It's that we would know that we were separated from God. This is great. And so when we think about sin not being in the presence of God, what we're saying is it is disobedience that can't be in the presence of God. And why can't disobedience be in the presence of God? Because God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. Everything bows the knee in the presence of God. That's good stuff right there. And so when we think about sin, and we think about our own personal sin, and we approach the throne of God, you know, in the Old Testament, if you're going into the Holy of Holies, you better prepare, right? It didn't happen often, and you better be ready when you went in, and they tied a rope around your leg, and if you died in the presence of God, they drag you out. That's how important it was, all right? And so when we think about, now what's happened is we've diluted that in our culture today, and we said, oh, the veil was torn, and we can approach the throne of God anytime we want, which is true. 
But it doesn't mean that we can just flippantly bebop up into heaven and say, God, I need to talk to you, and I need you to do something. No, there's preparation, my friend, before you just waltz in and tell God whatever you want to say. Right? You've got to submit to His authority. He is still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He still is the great I am, all right? He's still the one that with a thought and a, and a spoken word, He created everything that is in existence today. And with a thought or a spoken word, He can eliminate every bit of that. He's still God. He's still in absolute and in total control. And He still deserves absolute and total respect. You see, this is why God takes all sin upon Himself, because no one else was powerful enough to do it. Sin crushes, sin enslaves, sin destroys humanity, but it vanishes away into nothingness at the smallest touch of God's blazing holiness. So imagine, believer, if instead of sitting in the middle, remember my example earlier, that we said, you know what? I think I'm going to take holiness into this sin fight. I think I'm going to step up in all this mess that's happening right now and declare the sovereignty of God. Because if it is true, and by the way it is, and you believe it, back to our conviction conversation, then what will happen? It will effect change. It will happen. Because why? Because sin cowers in the presence of holiness. You see, it's not the absence of sin that God desires, but the presence of holiness. It's the presence of holiness. Is it important that you obey God? Absolutely. But God's desire is so much greater that you don't do something. God's desire is that you do something. It's not that you refrain from things, but it's that you participate in the things in which He has planned for you. And so instead of, and, and, and again, like I said, there's good news coming. So instead of us sitting and saying, okay, well, your challenge, Matt, uh, Pastor Matt, is for me to sit here and to, to look at my own life, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, to examine myself and say, okay, yes, there is sin in my own life, and I'm broken over the fact that I have sin against the holy God. Where does that leave me? It leaves you in a state of, believer, forgiveness, repentance. Turning away from that to what? To the holiness of the God who saved you. You see, it's in God's holiness. It's in God's holiness that this light shines brightest in the darkest areas of our lives. You see, that's what the good news is. You could take any sin you want before the throne of God, and it will disintegrate before God. You see, Israel was okay with everybody else's judgment. Now God's about to turn the tables, and He's going to talk specifically to their sin. You see, God has expectations. Although God is a loving God, which is true. God's a gracious God, which is true. God's a merciful God, which is true. God's also a just God. You see, God has the same expectations for all believers. And because we are believers... God has expectations. He has expectations. We can't just waltz up into His presence. We can't just live ever how we want to live and say, well, I've got the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of me, so I can just do whatever I want. I punch my card to heaven, and I'm good to go. That's not how this works. Remember, God's desire is uninterrupted fellowship. That's what God's desire is. And so for the nation of Israel, guess what God had? Expectations. God said in Genesis chapter 12, after the table of nations in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babylon, they tried to reach God. And God said, what? I'll start my own nation. And he calls Abraham out, and he starts the nation of Israel. And they were God's chosen people, just like believers today, as Gentiles were grafted in. As what? As God's chosen people. And so for God's chosen people, guess what there are? Expectations. You see, just because God has chosen you doesn't mean that you are exempt from His standards. Think about that. 
I think the world often looks at Christianity and say, oh, well, because I'm a believer, you know, God's going to get everybody on the outside. Pastor Tony talked about this last week. God's going to condemn or judge everybody on the outside, but I'm inside the church. And we even differentiate judgment, right? We say, we can't judge those outside the church, but we can judge those inside the church, Matthew 7, 1, right? So we can have those conversations and we say, well, they're different than us. Well, you're right. They are. Unbelievers are different than believers, the Bible says at the end there'll be a great separation between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. He says narrow is the way for those who follow and broad is the way for those who don't. There is a great separation and there's an expectation for the believer to live the way that God has called us to live. So just because you've been chosen, that you've been called, that you've been redeemed, that you've been forgiven, that doesn't mean you do nothing. That gives you extra responsibility. You're not exempt from standing up for what God has done in your own life. You're not exempt from declaring the Word of God just like Amos did. Amos is, here's this shepherd boy who God called him to do something, and in the midst of people who were certainly what they thought more important than Amos, he stood boldly and declared judgment from God. See how well that goes over in your office tomorrow. You see, even more as believers, we are to declare the goodness of God. See, Israel, they had passed the point of no return by disregarding and silencing the voice of revelation. I want you to hear this next part. This is good. Israel had passed the point of no return by disregarding and silencing the voice of revelation. In our world today, what separates believers from unbelievers? So the answer would be forgiveness, right? That'd be a big one. People would say, oh, it's it's forgiveness. Uh, It's fellowship. It's belief. Separates unbelievers from believers. You know, it's belief, right? There'd be some good answers to that question. What separates unbelievers from believers? It's a good conversation. Here is the pinnacle of that conversation. What separates believers from unbelievers? What separated the nation of Israel from every other nation? What separated Moses from every other person? Revelation. It was revelation. It was God revealed. God did God said things to Moses he didn't tell anybody else. God spoke to Israel. He wasn't speaking. Listen, he didn't tell the Amorites, hey, look, I've also told Israel they should come attack you, so you guys should probably get ready. No, he didn't do that. He told Israel what they were to do. Why? He revealed himself to Israel. He made himself known to Israel. That's God's chosen people. That's who God made himself known to. Revelation for believers today. Why are you a believer? Because of revelation. Because there was a point in your life where God revealed Himself to you, and that is your distinctiveness. It's revelation. You can Listen, you can get on the news, and you can buy a book, and you can get online, and you can find ways to be better at just about anything. As a matter of fact, YouTube has leveled the playing field. But you can't get revelation from YouTube. Everyone globally can get every piece of information and training and education of anything that they want, including you. The difference for believers is revelation. That is the difference. So the things that you receive, you received as a, uh, God revealing Himself as a revelation from who God is. It was, it was the central privilege to have personal dealings with God which was denied to surrounding nations. It was denied. Listen, unbelievers are not receiving revelation from God. Okay? Unbelievers aren't getting it. Only believers are. That is your distinctiveness. That is what makes you different. And so here's what happens. Now, I'm going to meddle for a second. Here's what happens. Here's why a lot of people who say that they are followers of Jesus aren't distinct. Listen to me very carefully. They are not heeding the revelation of God. Salvation is not the way you think it should be. Salvation is not the way you want it to be. 
Followship of Jesus is not based on your definition or your liking or your desire. It is what God said it is. That is what revelation is. God, the only way, here's the problem with our world today. No one wants to humble themselves. And so the only way you can come to Jesus is to humble yourself. You have to submit to the reality that you are a sinner separated from holy God, and there is absolutely no chance that you'd ever bridge that gap between you and God apart from Jesus. That's the only way it happens. And so our world doesn't want to declare that today. And so we got a lot of people today who are declaring themselves to be followers of Jesus, yet, listen, there's no revelation in their life. They're not heeding the revealed Word of God. So then the question would be, well, are they followers? The central privilege that the nation of Israel had was communication and fellowship with God. No other nation had that. As a believer today, your distinctiveness is what? It is the privilege of having communication with God through revelation. So what, is, what made Israel distinct, what makes us distinct today is revelation. So to be clear... So there's no confusion when you leave tonight. What is revelation? Is it a dream? Is it a writing on the wall like Daniel? Is it a cloud in the sky? Is it an angel appearance? What is it? Well, it's very simple. Revelation is simply the act of God revealing himself. Well, how did God do that? Well, let's see. Good question. So revelation is God revealing himself. How does God reveal himself? Long ago, Hebrews 1.1, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So how did God reveal Himself in the Old Testament? He revealed Himself through the prophets. So He used people like Moses, and then He used people uh, like Isaiah, and, and on down the line of all the prophets, Amos, to declare who He is. And so here are here is God revealing Himself through prophets. Now, we'll get to it in a second, but how does God reveal Himself to us today? Well, we're going to get to that. So, here is this competition for truth that was taking place. As we studied with the kings, remember, a new king would come in, and he would go uh, to his council and say, hey, what do you think I should do? And some would say, well, you should do what God says. And some say, you should do what man says. And they'd have to make a decision. Right? And so they'd say, well, what does the prophet say? And they would, even, uh, they would even coerce some of the prophets to do what? To only tell them what they wanted to hear. Remember all that? It's the same thing. And so as God revealed himself to them, there became this competition for truth. You see, it's this competition for truth that, was, that surrounded Israel. Was, are you going to listen to the revealed word of God? Are you going to do what God has declared to be true and commanded you to obey? Or... Is the competition for truth going to drown out the reality of who God is? And so what's happened today? There's been a massive competition for truth. You look around today. Everything has become subjective. Everything that's spoken has become truth. Remember, as Pastor Tony said Sunday morning, it is no longer should I, it is only can I, right? And so this this tradition, this competition for truth became more important than revelation. And so it was, what do we want truth to be? It's the same thing today. What do we, what do we like to hear? What would we like for truth to be? Okay? You know, I was reading a report uh, this last week, and it said one in three people said that returning to work affects their mental health. Well, sure it does. I would say three out of three, if you ask me, right? Everyone is discouraged by the fact that we have to work. But that's reality, right? But we've gotten into this area of life to where everything is subjective to whatever we want it to be. And so truth is, is, well, it's not really truth, but a lie has been cloaked in truth to believe whatever it is that the culture says. You see, it's not tradition that we can look back to and say, well, this is what it is. This is the traditional thing that we have to do, and so we, we must abide by that. We've got to revert to truth. Well, no, that's not revelation. Or we say, well, it's authority. Authority declares truth, and so whoever's in authority, then we have to listen to what they say. 
Well, you know, Paul says we submit, should submit to authority, but he says that we shouldn't submit to sinning because of authority, right? And so here we have this hallmark of the people of God to recognize the divine word of truth, to use it as a measure for judging all things and to reject all would-be competitors. So when anything other than the word of God is given supreme place in truth, so much so that we base our lives on it or that we allow it to guide our lives, well, then it becomes a lie and a source of lies. Let me say that again. When anything other than the Word of God is given supreme place in our lives, so much so that we base our lives upon it or we make decisions that guide us by it, then it has become a lie. Anything that is in competition with the revelation of God is inferior to that and therefore becomes non-truth or, other word, otherwise said, a lie. Let me give you the proof of that. Hebrews 1, 1. But in these days that he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He created the world. So look. So the very first part of that verse says, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. Israel, you heard that. Then in verse 2, it says, but in these last days, today, how has he spoken? He's spoken to us how? By his son. He has declared who he is by his son, whom he appointed. So he gave Jesus the heir of all things. So Jesus is above all things. And so what happens in the world today, how do we receive revelation from God? It is through the spoken word of God. God, the Word of God, all 66 books. This is revelation today, that we base our lives on the Word of God. That we say, well, what does God have in store for me? What would God have for me to do? What is God revealing to me? What is, what is happening in my life that God would reveal how I should respond to that? It is through interaction with what? The revealed Word of God. You see, even, even when part of a truth becomes the whole truth, it becomes a lie. Even when part of a truth becomes the whole truth, it becomes a lie. It's got to be all the truth. See, what Amos is doing is he's emphasizing the inner spring of conduct and the outer manifestation of actions. The inner spring of conduct and the outer manifestation of that. So if you believe that you in fact are a sinner and that it was your sin that separated you from God, that you, then what are you going to do about that? Well, what are you going to do is you're going to seek a redeemer and there's only one. And so you're going to submit yourself to, to the foot of the cross, right? You're going to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. As believers, as you have received the forgiveness of Jesus and you sin in your life, what are you going to do? You confess those sins. 1 John 1, 9, you're going to confess that. And then what's going to happen? Then you're going to be forgiven of that and you're going to repent. You're going to turn away from that sin. But you're ever going to be aware of the reality that you have the propensity to sin. And if it weren't for God, you'd be destined for eternal separation from God because of sin. You see, in, in abandoning God's truth in their minds, what happened to Israel is it began to play out in their actions. Or 2021, what's happened in our culture is we've abandoned truth of God in our minds and it is playing out in actions. You see, remember what we said at the beginning, that it starts by what? By not being sure about what you believe. How did all this sin start? It started with the question, did God really say? Right? That's where it started. It questioned, the enemy questioned the validity of God's revelation. And when we began to, to question, now you can test it. As a matter of fact, Christianity is the only religion that has apologetics. It's the only religion, think about it. 
It's the only religion that you can ask questions and you can go back and find historical documentation that proves the validity of it. There's over 6,000 fragments of Scripture that prove the validity of Scripture. God is not afraid of your questions. All right, you can ask whatever question you want. What I'm saying here as we talk about this is when we say, did God really say, when we question Revelation, that we know to absolutely be true. What do we know to be true? The Word. The Word. Amos chapter 2, verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four. Now we're to Israel. I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. They shut the mouths of the prophets. You see, when God comes near in Revelation, what He does is He reveals the life that He has planned for us and the life that He makes possible. And so we have to be honest about the sins of those outside and the sins of those inside. You know, in other words, the nations outside, the nation of Israel inside. You see, what was once judgment now for Israel outside of the nation or for us outside of the church has now become the same for those inside the church. What does that mean? It means that the standard is the same for everyone. You can be on the furthest corner of the globe, whatever that would be from here today, and the standard is that you only enter heaven by the shed blood of Jesus. It's the same for those who believe and don't believe. It's the same for those who accept the revealed Word of God and those who don't. It doesn't change. So you can say, yes, I'm a believer. I, I, I follow Jesus. I do my very best to obey Him. I depend upon God for the forgiveness of my sins and the salvation uh, for eternity. And guess what? The way that you get that, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said. And then you have someone outside the church who said God's not real. Or you have someone who follows another religion and said, no, this is who you should follow. It doesn't matter. The standard is the same for everyone. Outside or inside, it is only Jesus. So the central reality for the religion of Israel was the indwelling of God in their midst. And it's the same for us. It's that God dwells inside of us. And so the distinction for us is that we receive the revelation from God, and then what do we do? We act upon that. We act upon it. But if our actions... If our actions towards others are not patterned after God's actions towards us, then we cannot claim to belong to Him. So in other words, those that are outside or inside, the standard applies to everyone, and that our actions should be the same. And so for the nation of Israel and for us, as we conclude the revelation part, is that the deepest sin for the nation of Israel and the deepest sin for us today comes from the sin of possessing the revelation of God but ignoring it. He says in chapter 2 verse 13, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. Or, in other words, New Testament version, every knee will bow. 
He who handles the, uh, the bow shall not stand. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. You see, the whole truth of the redemption of God, the bringing people into His covenant of grace is not intended to produce moral complacency, but of moral ambition to obedience to God Himself. That it ought to cause us not to be complacent because we've been chosen, but it ought to cause us to be ambitious for the things of God and for the holiness of God. And so God says, I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this. Four or five times God says, I will do this, I will do this. It's known as the vengeance of the covenant. And we're, we're getting towards the end here, so I, wanna, I want you to hear this last part. The vengeance of the covenant. Now I want you to think about this for a second. What happened to the nation of Israel? They ceased to exist right, up until 1948. What happened to the nation of Judah? We, we talked about the end of the King study. They ceased to exist about 100 years prior to Israel. They ceased to exist. To which, what? To which the world would say, where's God's remnant? We look at the demise or the eradication, not completely, of the nation of Israel. Even up until World War II, what did we see? The attempt to eradicate the Jews, right? I mean, it's happened you know, over and over and over in history. Well, what does that teach us? That the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, no longer were a nation. The nation of Judah, the two tribes of, of the 12 tribes, no longer a nation. What does that teach us? Yeah, I think so oftentimes in our own lives that, that we lull to sleep our own sinfulness and we believe so much in the graciousness of God that we believe that God can't do anything about it, not because He's not capable of doing it, but what? But because He's more interested in His reputation. Right? Or in other words, we say, God would never... Listen, if we were prior to to the nation of Israel uh, ceasing to be a nation, we would have stood and declared to the death, we will always be a nation. Right? We're God's chosen people. He's not going to do that to us. Isn't that what you would say if you're Israel? There's no way God is going to to do that. He will never let that happen. Today, you hear people say that about America, right? We will always be the number one superpower in the world. Everyone says that today about America. Everyone said that about Israel. Think about this. But that is not what happened. There comes a point in the justice of God that He says, that's enough. That's enough. That he's not, he, he is not obligated to put up with this. He is not obligated to put up with your sin. We can't just fancy ourselves and continue to abound in sin and think that God is obligated to allow that. You see, disobedience will be met with punishment even if it means God destroys everything that he's built. He'll do it. It's just like the mom who told the child, I brought you into this world and I'll take you out. Right? Listen, he'll do it. We can't suppose upon the grace of God that he is not so just in his actions that he won't stop all of this. Because he will. He will. You see, this is referred to as the vengeance of the covenant. And the only thing that preserves the covenant is the author of the covenant. It is not the participants in the covenant. So you say, oh, I'm part of the new covenant. Well, guess what? You didn't write it. So you can be a part of the new covenant, and you can flaunt that all day long and say the new covenant of grace, that's what I'm a part of, which is wonderful. Don't get me wrong. But you didn't write it. And so the author of the covenant is the one who decides how and when the covenant is enforced. You see, look at Hebrews 12, 2 again. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. This is Jesus' deal, okay? 
It's not your deal. It's not my deal. It's his deal. As evidenced by our King's study, God is not interested in military, political, or commercial advancement. That is not what he's out for. He is not interested in in who has the best economy. He is not interested in who has the biggest military. God is not interested who is in politics. That does not interest God. We We are so conditioned in our lives to look for political or social or economic causes for the rise and fall of nations. We say, oh, well, it was because of socialism, or it was because of this, or it was because of, and all these, uh, this economic policy is going to cause this, or, and all these different things. Look, I know a lot about economics, and we, we, we say all these things are going to happen, but what we fail to factor in to the equation is God is not interested in those metrics. He is not interested in the GDP. He is not interested in debt-to-income ratio for the nation. He's not interested in those things. The Bible would disagree by the metrics in which the world says we have success or failure. The Bible would cause us to look at what? At the moral and spiritual causes of the rise and fall of the nations. And if we use the metric of moral and spiritual causes, then we better buckle up. Right? You see, to the Bible, history is the arena of moral decisions, it's the arena of moral conflicts, and it is the arena arena of moral consequences. The Bible, Jeroboam, remember we studied him, 41-year reign? You know how many verses the Bible gives Jeroboam? Seven. He reigned for 41 years, and Israel became one of the greatest superpowers at the time because of the economic prosperity and the lack of war and all the, the good things that happened in the nation. And yet, God chose to give seven verses. Seven verses. You see, God's not interested in what we would say as a world is a metric for success. He is interested in one thing and one thing only, and that is the sanctification of humanity. So we must measure success both in our world personally and in the world globally by God's measures. We should say, God, what do you measure things? Oh, you measure things by spirituality. Pastor Tony talks about this all the time. Listen, you can raise your kid to be a star athlete. You can raise your kid to have the highest ACT score. You can raise your kid to be excellent at playing instruments in the band or whatever your choice can be. But if you fail to raise them in the admonition of the Lord, you have failed. They can get a a full ride to Harvard or Stanford or wherever you, they can get a full scholarship to Duke or Kentucky, whatever you may. It doesn't matter if they don't know who Jesus is. And so if we're using the standards of the world today, they would say, well, they better study hard, or they better work hard on their athletics, or or they better get to know a lot of people so they can finagle their way through the political system. None of that matters without Jesus. None of it matters. God ends with his declarations. God said, I will not revoke the punishment. I destroyed the Amorites. I brought you out of Egypt. I will press you down. This is a stark reminder of the seriousness of sin in our own lives. In verse 16, he said, The mighty shall flee away naked in that day. It reminded me of Job chapter 1, verse 21, where, where it said, He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. As it was for the nation of Israel, the same as it is for us today. There is a God who loves you so much that He gave His Son to die on the cross for all the sins of humanity. That He would destroy the curse of sin to make a way for you and I to have a relationship with Him. This same God doesn't leave us in our sorrows nor the shame of our sin, but yet God speaks directly to us through His revealed Word to call us out of the darkness into His marvelous light. 
You see, our response, as was for the nation of Israel, is through the power of God's Spirit that we would live a life of distinct obedience, ever aware of our own sin, but ever dependent upon God's revelation and always acknowledging the fact that sin attempts to destroy us everywhere that we go. In the reality of that moment, we are left to say, only as Job ended that verse, naked I came, naked I will return. And he declares, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's all we have left at the end of the day. It's not about you. It's not about me. It wasn't about the nation of Israel. It was about God's holiness. And God will do absolutely everything to stand for His holiness, to preserve His holiness, and to promote His holiness. And so, if you think like me, then your response is this. Is I, I want to be as sinless as possible. And I want to be as filled with God's holiness as possible. So that I can be a mouthpiece for God, just like Amos was. This is not about a seminary degree. This is not about a special prophet. Amos was someone who chose to follow God, and God used immensely to declare who God is. And that's why He saved you. So, believer, you're distinct and you're different because you've had revelation. And so what you do with that revelation determines the chapters in the story of your life that God is writing. Amen?